Mark 9, and I want to start at verse 42. So stay with me, pay careful attention, because we're going to get to the bottom there at 49.15. That's going to be our key passage, but you need to see the full context. So Jesus is saying, and starting in verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better if he had a great millstone hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And if we need to move up, y'all just move up. If you can't hear me or you're getting distracted, I'm with you, so y'all move up if you need to. All right, so remember last week we were talking about what does it take for us to deal with our sin. How far should we be willing to go to cut off sin in our life? And here we go back in this passage. We're kind of repeating and reflecting this in, the, in Mark's translation. We should be willing to do whatever it takes. That's what it means by cut off your hand, cut off your foot, gouge out your eye. Jesus is using serious language here. Very descriptive, hard language saying do whatever it takes to root the sin out of your life. For everyone will be salted, did you see that? With fire. Salt is good. Okay, so I want you just to think about being salted for a moment. And then I want you to see in verse 50, the two areas that are exposed to the saltiness and the two areas that we've got to deal with. Have salt in yourselves, so first, Jesus says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. There's the two main principles we're pulling out tonight, self and others. We've got an and in the middle, so what does that tell us? Whenever you see the word and in Scripture, it means that you cannot disconnect those two principles. You have to take them together or not at all. So I cannot just deal with myself and not be at peace with others. And I cannot just deal with my relationships with others, but not deal with myself. It's an and. It's a both and. So as I am pursuing reconciliation and peace and harmony with others, which just feels like a fire (laughs) or burning off the things that we want. Maybe we want an apology or maybe we want an acknowledgement or maybe we want this thing to be made right and we're burning in the fire of of that desire, that need, with others, but then we also are dealing with ourselves. We're being very sober-minded about our own weaknesses. So I want to talk to you about yourself first, because I do believe that in the context of this series, what I find is that we as people, we get so morally outraged about so many things and 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 we will fail to look at our own self we'll get morally outraged about racism and abortion and same-sex marriage and poverty and injustice but we won't look at our own poverty we won't get morally outraged about our own injustices and so i want us to go first as mark states for us to have salt in ourselves. Okay, whenever you see fire, whenever you see fire in scripture, I want you to just remember that fire is associated obviously with trial, temptation, and testing. So those are your three T's that fire will always represent in scripture. We as mortal people that live in a very compartmentalized world, we want to separate all of these things and think that they're different, but they're actually not. In Scripture, they're all kind of inter- interchanged together. They all mean the same thing. 
A trial can be a temptation, a temptation can be a test. They're interchangeable in Scripture. But here in, in Mark specifically, a trial and a temptation and a test is all occurring. Kristen's working on my mic, sorry. To give us a context of what it is we're actually going to struggle with in the fire and what this is going to look like. Now look, just play this out. What parts of our life can be tempted? Very specifically, what parts of our life can be led into sin according to this passage? Well, first of all, whoever causes one of these little ones, whoever causes one of these young people, children to sin. So we know that a who, a who, a person, a specific relationship can tempt us or lead us into sin. If your hand causes you to sin, what does hand represent? Anything we touch. What we touch, what we drink, what we consume. If your foot, what does a foot represent? Where we go. A place, a particular place or environment can tempt us into sin, lead us into sin. And then, of course, our eye, our eye, what we see, what we take in. And I think this is really important that we we see the power here of, you know, your eye, your optical nerve attaches to your your mind, this is all very, very intentional of our thought life. What we see and we take in goes to our thought life and what we think about. And especially in context of being a light, Matthew 6:22, the eye is the lamp of the body. Remember what kind of light we are from our original uh, Matthew 5, when Jesus says, you're a city on the hill, don't put a what under the basket? What kind of a light? A lamp. Remember, we're the lamp because we cannot be the full light. We've got to have the, the, the light and we're the, we're the shade, and we only have a little bit of the light to offer here and there. Jesus is all the whole light. He's the source. So look again here at the reference. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And this is just Jesus saying, if the things of the world have become fun to you, exciting to you, if they, they're actually offering you an artificial version of what the light is and they've become great to you, how great. It's an even greater darkness. If you no longer can discern the difference between dark and light, Jesus is saying this is an even greater burden that you bear, an even greater weight to overcome. All right, so now that we can see what leads us in, I just want to look practically at what it looks like to sin. Remember, I'm, I've got a point here. Will you just keep going with me? We're just looking at ourself. We're looking at our own self and the progression of sin, and you need to go to James chapter 1 to find this. James chapter 1 tells us what it looks like for us to actually sin. Starts in verse 12 of chapter 1. And James says this, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. All right, there you see the first T, trial. For when he has stood the test, there's another T, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, there's your third T. So look, all of a sudden James has used all three of these interchangeably. They mean all the same thing. But I, I so want you to see that when I'm in fire, when I'm being salted, it can feel like a trial. It can feel like a test. It can feel like a temptation. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. All right, so what you see in this passage is the progression of sin. I want to clarify it for you. Thank you, y'all are being so gracious, and you are bearing with this. It, okay, y'all can hear me fine? Okay. <laughs> I feel like I can't hear myself. 
to our credit, we did not know this was happening tonight, did we? <laughs> All right. So, I'm fine. It's fine. Got it. It's clear that God does not do the tempting, but I, what, what I do want you to see is that he will put you in a presence to be tempted. God himself will not do the tempting, but he will bring us into a presence of temptation. Why? How do we know this? Matthew 4.1. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Who led Jesus to be tempted? Spirit. So sometimes we give the enemy way too much credit and we say, oh, the enemy is tempting me. The enemy is putting me in this place. And what I just want you to see is I want you to start to have a, a more biblical view of what trial really looks like because it's not the enemy with the power to navigate your steps. Proverbs twenty twenty four tells us that a man's steps are from the Lord. So it's not the enemy leading you into temptation. God might be setting you up. Now, but think about this, really. There's not a moment in our life where temptation is not an option. So before you get mad at God and go, well, how do I even have a chance here? There's not a moment in our life where disobedience or unbelief is not a possibility. You see what I'm saying? So before we get all riled up, let's just, let's really just take a step back and look at how this works itself out. When Jesus prays, lead us not into temptation, what he is meaning, what he is saying is, Lord, help us not to yield ourselves to the temptation. We might be in the presence of temptation, but what does God promise to offer us in temptation? What does God give us in any temptation? A way out. So God is always offering us a way out, but it doesn't mean the Spirit is not leading us to be tested and to have fire because we've got to be salted. We have to have a salt in us, and so we're going to go through testing and temptation and trial. And, and, and Jesus is saying, God forbid that we would yield, hold us back from actually stepping into the temptation, even though we have the opportunity if we do, it is from our own desire. We are tempted by our own desire. What does that mean? What, what, what does desire mean? That's, right, that's it, Jane. It's just what we want. It's, it's really what we want. It's what we think that we need. It's the who, it's the where, it's the what we touch. It's all of the, the hand, the foot, the eye, the, the people that we, that we want. Desires are born out of need, whether they are perceived or real. Our sinful desires are born from a thing that we think that we need. So very simply, the fastest way to defeat sin in our life <laughs> is not to need. <laughs> The fastest way to defeat sin is to change our desires because we cannot be tempted by something we don't desire. Temptation is the offer that sin makes to your desires to fill in the places that are empty. And I want to change that a little bit. I've looked back and go, I don't like that. Temptation is the offer sin makes to your desires to fill in the places that don't believe God can fill. The places of your desires that have unbelief. And I want to change that because I'm remembering Romans 14, 23 that says unbelief is actually the root of every sin. So I'm set up, maybe I'm led into a, a fiery situation, a test, a trial, a temptation. And that's from the Lord. And he's given me a way out, which is to trust him, to believe him. It doesn't mean it's going to be a poster with a flashing sign with light saying, instead of going right, go left. It, it literally means in the middle of the temptation, he is going to offer you to be better. He is offering you, I am, I'm better than whatever you think you need. And if you'll trust me to fill that need... Can I share with you one of the questions from, that I did get? I got 
two questions. One of the questions I, I want to answer now, and I probably will not answer it the way that the questioner wants. It's anonymous. I don't know who wrote it. But I talked last week about how just to abstain from, from sexual activity outside of marriage. And I said, God can actually fulfill your sexual desires. If, if you will trust him, I mean, even in a married situation, a married relationship, sometimes there are things happening, addictions or, um, you know, illness or different things happening, separation, that would, you would need to abstain from sex even with your married partner. So what do I do with all of my sexual desires? You let God satisfy them. I mean, it really, it really, really is possible. And so I don't know how to answer, if somebody wants to answer that question more specifically, I just think it's, it's really a matter of him being better than sexual fulfillment. How is he going to be better than sexual fulfillment? I've got to know him. I've got to get to know him. And when I know him and as I trust him and as I put that into evidence and I start to break the strongholds that I think my sexual desires need to be aroused or fulfilled or rewarded, it's really no different to your brain than needing a drink of alcohol and becoming an alcoholic. Your, your brain registers three things in its reward center, sugar, sex, and substance. And they all light up about the same way, and they're all an addictive thing. So the more sex you have, the more you think you need it. And the more sugar you have, the more you think you need it. And the more substance abuse you have, the more you think you need it. So if I believe that God is actually able to reward me, to be my reward, my great reward, then I don't have to keep, you know, I, then I have to do the hard work of actually breaking habits. I cannot go out and get a six pack. I cannot log on to a porn site. Like I have to actually do the behavioral things to cut off my hand. But I don't think there's an, an answer more than he's just got to be better and you've got to do whatever it takes for him to be better. Go to counseling. Get some friends. Show up at church. Read your Bible every day. We want it to be more complicated. It's not. <laughs> All right, Matthew 6, starting in verse 25. And I just you've heard this story. You've heard Jesus speak these words, but let's break it down. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body or what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Look at the lilies of the field, how they grow. They don't toil or spin. And I'm telling you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. So if God clothes the grass of the field, which is alive in one day and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not clothe you? Oh, you of little faith? Question mark. That's important. Make a note of that because we want to say it. Oh, you have little faith. Mm -mm. Question. He's asking you. Oh, you have little faith. Do you trust me? Therefore, what's the therefore, therefore, because of all this information you just heard, now don't be anxious saying what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear the gentiles seek after all of these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all but seek first the kingdom of god and his righteousness and all of these things will be added to you so don't be anxious about tomorrow Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Look at the progression here that Jesus is helping us see how this is all in us. This is our internal lens right now. Unbelief. Oh, you of little faith. Okay, we see, some, we see a need. We see unbelief. And remember that sin is rooted at the core. The very first thing is unbelief. We don't believe that God can provide food, clothing. These are just the basic amenities here. 
And then we have a lack. We have a need. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? There's a lack of security, a sense of safety. And then we have a desire. And so Jesus says, oh, the Gentiles, they, this is how they act. This is their sinful desire as they have the desire, the need to feel protected and in control. And so the temptation, therefore, is to figure out how we're going to fix this ourselves. And when we place ourselves in the position of God and we try to take this on, what's the symptom? What is, it, what is Jesus specifically addressing as the symptom that's going to give you a check and balance that you've got sin going on somewhere in there is the feeling of anxiety. The feeling of anxiety. He goes right to it. And so the actual sin in this passage, which of you can be anxious, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to your life? It's, it's needless worry. It's needless anxiety about things that we cannot control. And so I'm asking you tonight to be honest with the Lord about where you have needless anxiety because of a desire that you think you need rooted in something that you don't believe God can actually do. And I'm asking you to ask him to land it for you, like make it so clear. Because for the sake of the gospel, for the salt and the light to go out into this generation and the next generation, we've got to deal with ourselves. For the sake of the gospel, may we own the things that are weaknesses and sin to us. Now I'm going to spend the next few minutes in a therapy session. And I know some of you might want to check out right now, and some of you this is not your jam. Will you let it be for just a moment? Will you give it a chance? This is my jam. This is Jordan's <laughs> jam. She loves her some therapy, girl. Mm -hmm. All right. So, I use this a lot in therapy. I've given you the actual diagram that I'll put on my board, and I want you to look at it. Some of you are already like, I'm out. <laughs> I see it on your faces. Hold on. Hold on. I'm about to prove to you that, that this is actually biblical. So, you're going to love it, because God actually invented psychology and mental health and all of this. Watch this. Did you know that you can inherit fear? Did you know that we have MRI testing now, just over the past 20 years, something very new and recent that's taught us that, well, and the Old Testament actually taught us this long before MRI scans, that the sins are passed, unrepentant sins are passed from generation to generation. And now we actually have the brain science to prove it. That things like fear and, and shame and particular coping of that fear and shame, that we can actually inherit those at a DNA level, at a cellular level. So the things that were fearful for our parents or their grandparents or what it was a very real reality for them actually transfer to us at a very subconscious level. Now... Wouldn't this now make a little more sense that we are looking at everything in our life, our own relationships, our past, our parents, what we've learned, what we've seen, what we've watched, when in Mark, Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. You've got to understand the severity of what Jesus is saying right now. He's literally saying, if you lead a child into sin. He's, he is using therapist language. He's saying they don't have a prefrontal cortex. They can't reason. They're, they're, they can't reason the way you can, adult. They can't look at their life and have patterns and evidence and structures that say that was unwise, this is wise. And so they're watching you. They're being shaped by you. What is fearful for you becomes fearful for them. The energy in your home, the tension, the conflict, the fighting, they're being shaped and molded by that. And they're picking up on that at a cellular level. And it is writing itself into their DNA. 
And now if, if we don't do the work of repenting for our sin and dealing with ourself, we pass it on to them. And now they're going to be responsible for repenting of that. I actually really believe this, or I wouldn't do this work, but I believe this not just from a scriptural standpoint and a neuroscience standpoint, I believe this from a personal standpoint. I mean, if if you've been raised in any form of dysfunction and trauma and conflict, it is a real thing that writes itself into you, and until you are older and have a better grasp of your own faculties and systems, you can't reason with it. Does it make sense? You just know you're scared of something, and you don't even really know what you're scared of sometimes. I didn't know when I was neglected and when I was abandoned when I was five, six, seven, and eight that that would lead to a teenager who was deeply, deeply scared of being abandoned and neglected, especially by a man who would then, as, her, as she's 23, 24, 25, would still carry that little girl in her who deeply needed to be uh, um, affirmed and valued and see the staying power of a man. I couldn't reason. And, and I think Jesus is using these words because he wants us to see the severity of parents. You've got to deal with your stuff because your kids are watching you and they are taking it on. And it, it, I, I don't even like saying this, but this is literally the language of the Bible. It would be better if you were drowned. I'm not, this is not my words. This is like what Jesus is saying. This is how severe it is. So we as adults, if you haven't done this work, you've got to learn to reason. For the sake of the gospel, in the next generation, you have to learn to reason with yourself. And I want you to see exactly where that is in your, in your brain. <laughs> I've given you a little diagram there. And you're going to see those it move up from in four different tiers. You see the four tiers there. So the way that our brain is shaped, we have four systems. And every message that we receive, including this one right here now with me, it starts from the back and it works its way forward, back to front, back to front, over and over and over, millions of times a day. And those, neuro, those networks that wired together from the ages of in utero, because at a cellular level, children actually know if they're abandoned or neglected or wanted in utero. At a cellular level, those networks wire together and they shape the course of, of movement of neurotransmitters that tell us how to see and perceive the world. And every single message has to go up through the regulate, through the relate, and then finally to reason. So what we want is for every message to get to the reason place which is our cortex, the most mature adult-like part of our brain that is not fully developed until we're 25. But it has to pass through our zero to five, which is the regulate space. This is our diencephalon. It has to go into our five to 15 year old space, which is our limbic system. It has to relate to the world around it. And then about 18 to 25, we create an ability to reason. So, my first, my first point is, we don't change randomly. We actually have to be intentional. Because we will just keep doing. Our brain wants to do what's comfortable, it wants to do what's easy, and it wants to do what's familiar. And so it will just keep doing that until you tell it to stop. So at some point, you've got to be salted with enough fire to get your system to stop and reason and go, this is, I, I'm not five anymore. I'm not 15 anymore. I'm an actual grown adult. It's okay. Sit down, 15-year-old. Sit down, five-year-old. You're safe. I've got you. God's got you. So you see, you have to actually do that work. Because look at what is at the top, the very top part of our prefrontal cortex that we want to be in all the time. Our ability to think our ability to put words into formation to talk about how we feel, our timestamp, our ability to tell time. Your brain cannot tell time. You actually tell it what time it is. And so if you don't have a prefrontal cortex lighting up, you're going to respond exactly as you did at 15. 
because your brain is just thinking that's what time we're in the past. You actually have to say, we're not in the past anymore. We're, we're in the present. And teach it to tell time. But also look at these. Hope, empathy. The first sign that you are, your, your whole cortex is gone and down is when you stop caring about how your decisions affect others. That's a very first sign that you have gone dark on that top level is when you forget that your sin and your, your decision not to regulate, not to reason with yourself, not to be self-aware, it actually affects other people. In your home, in your church, in your workplace. So we have to invite God to do this. Remember our, our verse from last week, Psalm 139. We have to invite him to investigate us. And I love that Jesus specifically uses anxiety because that is the exact thing that shuts down the cortex. See, Jesus is telling us about psychology. Don't be anxious because when you're anxious, you cannot get to your reason center. <laughs> so where does anxiety come from? a need that we don't think can be met. So you see the movement there. Also notice I've put Romans 12, 2 in there because I want you to see how scripture-based this is. I'm getting a message. That's my sensory world, my brainstem, the very, very old part of our brain. Then it moves into the next space. That's, that's the regulated space. This is the part that's actually transformed. So when I say, I want something in my life to be transformed, I'm, I'm saying, I want something to be different. I want the behaviors in my life to change. I want the things that, um, that my appetite craves to look different. That's actually what's transformed. But how does that happen? Well, that actually happens in the limbic system by the renewal of our mind, because there is where you hold all your memories, you hold all your emotions, and where you bond with other people. And so in order for your mind to be, in order for your behaviors to be transformed, you have to go to that limbic system and you have to look at all that stuff. You have to think about how your parents shaped your life. You have to think about what you saw that was healthy and unhealthy. You have to think about all the biases and the prejudices and the stereotypes your little subjective world sees and you have to be honest about it and how they've infiltrated your emotions and your memories and your ability to bond or, or to be at peace with people. Because if I'm a child from neglect or abuse, it's not going to be easy for me to trust you. And, and if I stay in that threat, I can stay in that threat. I meet people in my office that have been in threat without any prefrontal cortex for years. Their amygdala is locked in. It is bright red. It is flashing lights on, which is the threat center of the brain. And when amygdala is on, prefrontal cortex goes dark. When we are scared, when we're in threat, when we don't believe that God can meet a need, our whole ability to actually reason with ourselves and one another goes dark. And what are then we left to do? What happens if I take out that whole top layer? Look where you're at. <laughs> look at your options. This is when you hear childlike self in therapy. We'll say you're in your childlike self, and that's a real thing. <laughs> I'm just going back to those wiring that I, that I, or default, my default coping, my fight, flight, or freeze. Because our childlike mind is always just trying to validate the world in more sophisticated ways. I'll give you an example of me. When I was dating Justin, when we first started dating, I had no language. I had never reasoned with myself. And so I, I could not really test and discern God's good, good will for me because nothing had been really transformed at the base level. My mind had not been renewed at that uh, core belief level. And therefore, I was really struggling to test and discern much of what God's good will was for me. And what I would do is I would revert to childlike self because I didn't have the language of, of a male presence that could love me and stay with me just because they wanted to. 
in my mind, in my code, a man left. And it was just a matter of time before Justin would leave. So at a very subconscious level, I didn't even realize I was doing it. I was, um, I was pricking I was trying this thing. I, I was creating the chaos again because it's what my body knew. It's what was familiar to me. So I would provoke arguments with him from nowhere. I would just pick something out of the blue and start a fight just to keep this thing going because it's what I knew. I knew the chaos, I knew the disorder, and I knew the inevitable betrayal or hurt. And so I just kept provoking this thing and this chaos. And finally, he was, what are you doing? I mean, what are we even talk, talking about here? I don't know. What are you talking about? You know, it just, I just kept perpetuate, perpetuating this cycle until I chose to heal. I had to stop coping and I had to start healing and I couldn't heal until Matthew 6.33, which is the answer, I sought the kingdom first. When I started to seek the kingdom first, and I know that sounds like spiritual language that we use, but that, what that means is I've got an eternal view of this situation. I know that this is not forever. This is just a blip on the radar. I am just dust. And so my eternal view now of being in a relationship with Justin, if I can seek that first, if I can see that first, then guess what happens? I start to reason. I start to calm down because what happens when everything matters forever? Everything matters forever. And now my parents, although they may not have been the parents I would have picked, they matter forever. God didn't miss it. God didn't make a mistake. God, God wasn't wrong where he put me in the neighborhood I grew up with, with the people that I did, all the hurt, all the pain, all the trauma. He didn't miss it. And now when I have eyes to see the kingdom first, that there's actual intentionality and purpose and leading in what God is doing in his sovereign will, even though it doesn't make sense to me. Well, now... Now I can reason with myself. Now I can discern. And now, and now, moving into the second part, I might actually have a chance with others. Have salt within yourselves and, remember the end, be at peace with one another. I want to have salt within myself and I want to be at peace with one another. So how am I going to do this together? How am I going to salt myself with fire well, I'm going to create, I'm going to create new challenges and I'm going to expose myself to things that I've never thought about doing before. I'm going to expose myself to conversations that I've never had before with people that I once maybe was scared of. I'm going to expose myself to people who are different than me. You know, one thing that I had to expose myself to was an actual healthy family. I'd never experienced that before, and I had to actually just let Justin's family teach me. I had to watch them do life together without any cost-benefit analysis, without any works-based earned love. I had to watch it and sit back and quit being so defensive all the time. And somebody look at me, value me. I have a need over here. I had to do it without jealousy, without comparison. I had to just sit back and learn and surround myself with people and it was risky. I had to show up at church. That's fire. <laughs> I had to expose myself to new challenges. And this is the salt. I'm asking you, look at your life. Look at the code. Look at the places you haven't reasoned. And salt yourself with new things. Expose yourself to new things or you're never going to. Right, Jordan? That girl's done that. You talk to her. She will tell you how to do it. She has exposed herself and challenged herself with things that she has never done before. And she would say, I think, she is healing and that God is good. Jesus is better to her than ever before because she's doing the work. So I am asking us to ask God to use every form of test and trial to burn away every subtle, 
subconscious bias that is compromising our peace with one another. May he use every test and trial to burn. Remember, if we don't create an altar, we'll create an idol. So ask him to burn, send it up in smoke, everything you think you know. <laughs> we are not objective. We are not objective. In fact, remember, we have implicit biases rooted deep into our family origin and generations have inherited and passed on prejudices. What an implicit bias is, is it means that you've attached a particular meaning or value to a group of people and you don't know it yet. It's implicit. It's, it's internal. It means that you're actually thinking about some group of people in a certain way because of the way your parents did or their grandparents did or their grandparents did and you don't know about it yet it, it just it hasn't become a part of your consciousness yet and i am asking us as christians to ask god to draw it out And whenever we fear that our need is not going to be met, your implicit bias or your stereotype is going to take the driver's seat. So if that's another thing. When you've got anxiety, when you feel like a need's going to be met, you're going to default into the old system. It's just the way it is. I, there, this is just, this is science. This is scripture. How do you know you're in sin? You're doing childlike things. You're acting like a child and friends, with friends. You're gossiping, you're cutting people out too soon, you're leaving people out, you're doing childlike things. You need to be attention, you need a validation. Let me talk to you for just a few minutes about some examples of implicit bias. Give you some. Chris, would you mind getting me a little bit more water? Sorry to bother you. I feel like I'm about to dry out up here. Thank you. Some of our implicit biases, because she has a lot of followers on social media, she's happy. A person with attractive features, attractive form, they're more qualified. We don't know for what, for ministry, for a job, whatever, but a person with that is attractive is more qualified. How about this one? Because they attend church, they're a Christian. How about because they are attracted to the same sex, they are not a Christian? These are some examples of implicit bias. Because they are older, a senior adult, they're out of touch with reality. If they vote Republican, they're conservative. And if they vote Democrat, they're liberal. Which sounding name as far as business professional sounds more hireable? Connor or Deshaun? We have biases. And we are very, very unloving and unwise not to acknowledge them. And we will not be at peace with one another until we recognize our biases and repent in community. This has to happen in community. And, and believe me, I'm the first to the line to say, I wish it didn't. <laughs> I wish I didn't have to bring these out in front of people from a public place and say, these are my blind spots, but this is the way of God. It is his nature. He's a community. Father, Son, Spirit, he's communal, and so he's going to require this of us. He could do the work. It's not that he can't do the work. It's just that he's not going to, because it's contrary to who he is. He's going to require that you be in relationship with others. So the Spirit may actually reveal your blind spots, but healing happens in community. So the Spirit may absolutely convict your heart and bring those up right now in this moment maybe. The places of deep need that you have not allowed God to satisfy and therefore very systemic biases that you have in your heart or don't even know you have yet. That, that might happen with the Spirit, but actually being healed 
Actually, the ability to reason together. Come, let us reason together. James 5, 6, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be what? Come on. What is that word? Why do we confess? Why do we pray? Why are we doing this together? So that we can be healed. So do you want to just cope or do you want healing? Because I want healing. Let me give you another example of why this can't just be you and God. And I'm sorry, I also have taken the past many times that's not real of, yeah, I did that work with God, I'm good. I just repented of that with God. I reconciled that with God. I did that in my heart. I just did that in my heart. You know, let Peter, look at the life of Peter. You know what Peter shows us? Peter shows us that a person can be sincerely in love with Jesus being used by God in mighty ways to build the church and still be completely blind to his own sin and superiority. Back to Romans 12. Now I'm going to pull it out. I hope this just rocks you. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercy of God, present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be conformed by the renew. Let me say that again. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. All right, so we see how we do it, Okay, I talked you through that with a little brain diagram. That's how we do it. But why? Why do we do it? For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned to us. I know I'm running short on time, but I really need to pull this together for us. relationships you see he did the there's romans going back to our our verse in mark we want to be salt and we want to do it in ourself and for the peace of others so do the work in yourself and then know it's so that you will think soberly in community relationships sober us up paul goes right into why do you do this work so that you will not think more about yourself than you should He points right back to the others so that we can love, so that we can be salt, that we can be light. Because he knows and God knows that we can look at the same thing and completely see it different. Jamie and I can look at this chair and I'm going to say it's tan and she's going to say it's brown. He knows that we are subjective and we're going to look at something maybe like racism. And we're going to say, oh, that's not a thing for me. I'm not a racist. I don't know what all this talk is about Black Lives Matter and critical race theory being in school. I don't agree with that. And why why are we doing this? And the first sign that you know that you've got an unmet need, that you've got a desire gone wrong, is when conversations like that get you riled up. When you are offended or defensive, over something like critical race theory. Let me tell you something straight up. I don't agree. I actually went and read all about critical race theory. Um, Context definitely helps when you realize who was writing it. A group of lawyers were writing it to um, help give understanding and insight because racial injustice was being done. And they were advocating in in that lane. And so that helps. But I will say the actual theory itself is very complicated. It's very convoluted. There's a lot of words. It's, very, it's hard to understand. And I don't think, personally, I don't think it would be the most helpful way to teach our children about uh, racial discrimination. Okay? But now I'm not offended by it. Do you see what I'm saying? I'm not up in arms about it. Because my kids don't learn about race from school. My children because Justin and I have chosen to reason with our own stuff. So now we, by the grace of God, 
we don't do it all right and well and they'll carry some stuff down. But we have broken so many chains of our generational sin. My kids learn about discrimination and oppression and injustice from me, from my husband in our family. So when they go to school and hear about that, I'm not worried. I'm not worried because they'll rightly reason. They'll rightly reason. I've taught them to. But guys, we've got to be honest about things like this. We've got to be honest about all these little biases. In light of this series, I am simply asking you to be women that now go out and listen more. Listen more. Don't be offended. Don't get defensive. If you're doing that, what are you doing? The two Ps. You're protecting or you're proving. So I can have a conversation in these. And by the way, guess what I don't know at all? Guess what my subjective reality has not taught me in any little way? How to be black. I have zero language or learning or understanding of what it is to be Asian, Latino, or African American, or Indian, or any other minority group in the United States. I have no idea or understanding. So what do I have to do? Listen. Listen without anything to prove, without anything to protect, because let me tell you something. I've got bias. I've got bias. It's implicit, and I don't see it all right now. But y'all, the word race is a man-made system. God in his goodness and sovereignty created ethnicity, and we're all different and we're all beautiful. And God in his sovereignty, Acts, the book of Acts, he sends us out into all different parts of the world to create cultures and tribes to be different. But the word race was actually created by human beings to justify colonization and to justify slavery. It created a value system of humanity. And I'm not trying to push your buttons. I'm, I'm just asking us to reason. And, and I might, as a white woman in America who's had a lot of privilege, say that slavery is gone, but that's never been a part of my generational inherited line. So if fear is inherited, what might African-American people actually be experiencing now in our generation based on their great-grandparents? Because slavery absolutely was a thing. People were bought and sold, and African-American people were a minority. And I want you to understand, we, we, we read and study and create sermons built on some of the most intellectual, reformed white men that have ever lived. And those same reformed white men that we study and we read, they owned black slaves. So let Peter, listen, I'm not losing it over here, I'm just saying, Peter loved Jesus sincerely. And he was growing the church in tremendous ways. And he still was not aware of his blind spots. So if Peter wasn't, and some of the greatest theologians of all time were not, then why in the world would I assume that I see it all clearly? Sometimes a set of lies are so ingrained that it has blinded us for so long, it's actually in the soil of our heart. And if we don't get to the root of the soil, it will spring up over and over. It will reincarnate, reincarnate itself in more sophisticated forms. So we actually have to think deeply about racism, about racial reconciliation and the need for it, about injustice. Because if some of the greatest white Christian reformers went to church on Sunday and read the same Bible as me and prayed some of the prayers as me and owned another human being... I can't dismiss that. I have to actually think about it. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not defensive. I'm not offended. I'm not. But it breaks my heart. And I need to learn. Because I don't know. I don't know what it's like to inherit that fear. I, I know that this is something that we've got to talk about even more. And I don't have time. 
tonight. I'm, sim I'm actually not opening a discussion about racial reconciliation. I am saying, please, Christian, will you be willing to learn? Will you be willing to be wrong? When I was 12 years old, my brother was eight, and his baseball team were at the end of their season, and they were going to have a party at my grandparents' house. My grandparents had a pool, and they were going to have pizza, and all the team were going to come over. And so I remember um, showing up to that, that night in the pool party, and there were music playing, and we had streamers, and we had pizza, and it was just fun. And I remember looking around at, at the, all the kids, all the boys in the pool, and realizing that half of the team was missing. And so I went up to my mom and I asked her, where's so-and-so and where's so-and-so and where's so-and-so? And she got all kind of bothered and weird and awkward and she just kind of patted me on the shoulder and said, don't worry about it, they just couldn't be here tonight. You go have fun, you go play. What I would learn over the next few months is that the boys that were missing were missing because they were not invited because their skin was black. And my very own grandparents did not want them in their pool. So you, you think this is over? You think this isn't a thing? I was 12. That was just a few decades ago. And so would I be loving to not look at myself and go, if that was what was passed on, if that's what was shaped in me, is it not still residual somewhere in there that I need to ask the Lord to set fire to? You've been taught that your neighbor, that you are here to love, looks nothing like you. Your neighbor is not just your group of familiar, all of these white women, women sitting around. Do you, I mean, do you not think that segregation is still a thing because <laughs> the church is actually meant to be a diverse body that looks like the kingdom where people from every tribe and tongue and nation are one in Christ and our church should be very colorful and it's not. On Sunday mornings, we're still the most segregated group of people, so it's still a thing. We need to talk about it. Why aren't we talking about it? Why are we scared? Because we don't have to be offended. I can learn. Show me how to do it. So I'm not going to go sit down with my white friend to show me how to do it. I'm going to go find my African-American sister who I actually have on speed dial. I'm not kidding you. Do you have African-American, Asian, Latino sisters that you have in your phone that you can text? I do. It's one of the best things I ever did was identify those women who could speak truth to me and help me learn. And I call them and I ask them. If there is going to be any peace, any unity in Christ, any chance for the gospel to go forward in our culture, <laughs> we've got to cross a boundary here. We've got to care more, and the Word must actually become flesh. The, we must put on the Word, and it become flesh. So I'll end on this. Luke chapter 4, because we've talked about temptation, and we've talked about sin, and I want to take you right into the place where Jesus himself was tempted and without sin. Jesus goes through the wilderness and he's tempted in every way that a human can be. And he sets his desire and he reasons with himself and he trusts God, even though he knows the fire that is to come. And right after that, he goes and he preaches his very first sermon. And these are the words of Jesus. He opens the scroll and he reads from the prophet Isaiah. And he says this to the listeners, and I'm saying this to you now. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolls up the scroll and he gives it back. And this is the gospel. 
He didn't have anything more to say because this is the very essence of, in, of, of being salt and light in our culture, in our world, to proclaim liberty to those who are still captive, to help recover sight of those who are still blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So by default, what he is saying is these people exist in your world. There are poor, there are captive, there are blind, there are oppressed. Will you see them? Will you choose to see them? And if you don't see yourself clearly, you'll never have eyes to see them. He has given you this mission. This is our mission. We have the mind of Christ. We have the resurrected power of the Spirit that lives within us. So we have the same ability and power to do just this.